Hi, I'm Gary Knoll, and I'd like to welcome you to a continuation of our ongoing self-empowerment series. The theme today is how to bring new meaning into your life. What do I mean? I mean all of us one day wake up and we ask ourselves, are we starved for meaning? What is the core value of our life? What about our relationships? Are they stagnant? Are they dull? Are they exciting? Are we challenged by them in creative ways? Are we sharing positive energy? Now I'm going to connect several principles to this discussion. One being, what is the meaning of your life up to this point, and is that what you live by? Or are you living through someone else's meaning? Are you going day to day through rituals? and you just do all the things that a person does day after day, eating the same foods, listening to the same radio programs, watching the same programs on television, having the same type of conversations. And if so, what does that do to empower you? What does that do to challenge you? What does that do to enhance you? Because when you look at what a good meaning is, it's something that allows you to recognize that you're living a life with a legacy of joy, happiness, kindness, excitement, passion, creativity, and people who come into that life hopefully are appreciative and have similar qualities themselves. That's how you harmonize your energy. You can look in someone's eyes and know if there's a harmony, a connection. And we've all had this experience. You look at someone, you connect, right? It doesn't matter what the person looks like. It matters what they're feeling because what excites us about someone is the energy. Think of all the people in the 1960s who were excited by the Beatles or by Elvis. I mean, it, they weren't the greatest singers or musicians, nor was Elvis, but they had something that they did not inhibit, they did not limit. They were not voguing and taking a selfie. They were open to sharing their energy, their passion, their pleasure with us. And we felt it. And you didn't have to be at that level, let's say, of a cultural singer. You could have been a Frank Sinatra. Again, you harmonized with him. You felt good about being with him. Now, coming right down to our relationships, do we feel good about the people in our lives? Do we feel good about ourselves? When we look in a mirror, can we think, yeah, you're the one right now, right here. You're starting with passion. You wake up in the morning, you start with passion. What another day to be alive. Now, I work with terminally ill patients. In fact, the only people that come to see me are people who have a letter from their doctor saying, there's nothing more we can do. Medicine's tried everything, and that's it. They should go into hospice care, put their life in order. So when I sit down with someone and they have advanced cancer or AIDS or emphysema, I don't start by saying, well, Let's get you taking some more juice or eating a vegan diet. I never talk about that. In fact, they're surprised because they walk out without any protocols at all. And yet, a very high percentage not only increase their quality of life, length of life, many are reversing their disease altogether. Where do I start? I start by what do you have to live for? Anything? Or just more of the same? And as more of the same and the boredom and tedium that that brings with it, the meaninglessness of that, the, the boredom of that, is that in any way contributing to your 
you know, being at this stage of disease and end of life? And I ask for an honest answer. And frequently, they don't know how to answer that. And they'll say things like this, what are you asking me about the meaning of my life when I'm at the end of my life? I have no more options. I say, of course you do. Who says that there are no such things as options right up until the last breath you take? All right. So if they can't find a meaning to live for, I can't help them. I want to, but this is like pushing a rope up a hill. It doesn't work. You can't do it. But when someone starts to remember what it was like when they did have passion, and they did have meaning, and they were following some bliss, and they had moments that were remarkable, remarkable because of the joy, the excitement, something new, sharing energy with someone where you were in perfect harmony for that moment, or that week, or that year, or that decade, where you just, it worked. And everyone has that in their life. The trouble is, it's not always consistent. There's these, you know, suddenly you're with someone and you think this is going to last forever, especially on your honeymoon. And then later you find out, well, whatever I felt that and, and experienced that, that was then, that was that moment. Well, we like to think forever. We like to think in permanency. We like to think that nothing has an expiration date, yet everything has an expiration date, everything. Everything that we valued at one day will no longer exist. Every one of our homes and apartments and backyards and gardens, everything that we've put time and energy into, at some point someone else will be enjoying it. They won't know a thing about us in all likelihood, but they will get the benefit of what we created. And they in turn at some point will be gone or moved and someone else will enjoy it. I built one of the most beautiful apartments in South Beach from scratch. I bought it when it wasn't even a building. It was an idea when it was a ghetto. Now it's one of the most important places in America to live, South Beach, below Fifth Street where I live. It was a five block area. It was a ghetto. It was gang ridden. When I finished with just concrete walls, floor, that's it. If you've ever been, ever been on a construction site and you see it before they do the build out, what's called the build outs, you know, putting in the floors and all the furniture, that's what it was like. And yet, if you go up on the internet and you look at that apartment, you go, wow. Now that gave me an opportunity to challenge myself because that was my, that was my platform. I was sculpting everything in there. I had to design it. Like an artist looks at an empty canvas. The artist doesn't see an empty canvas. The artist sees the, the painting and then goes about with application to produce it. A director, a director sees a whole scene before it's been created, but if the director didn't see the scene, the director would know what to come from the actors, from the lighting, from the music, and, but he had or she had to have that before. So before anything, the progenitor, the beginning of, the foundation of, has to be the idea. And the idea is what allows us to have the passion because when you start building upon an idea, every stage of building upon the idea, from conception to completion, you're the architect of. It's your design. You can change it at any time. You can repurpose it. If it doesn't work one way, make it work another way. And then one day, you stand back and think, wow, this is pretty neat. Now Picasso, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Degas, all the great ones, Remar, 
none of them, none of them started without an idea. They didn't make it up as they went along. You know, you don't suddenly go out there and say, hmm, I'm going to build a, uh, I'm going to build a, the Louvre. I have no idea what I'm going to do. No, you have ideas. But sometimes we're afraid of our ideas. And we're afraid of our passion. We're afraid to have that clarity of mind, seeing something, even the passion to see into someone, the energy and read it and say, this person has been under-actualizing their potential. What would be they like if they surrendered their guilt, surrendered their fear, surrendered their uh, insecurity, surrendered their conditioning, and simply stepped forward in consciousness saying, I'm ready. What do you want to do? Huh? Now that's an exciting person to be around because they're not predictable. I mean, just think of it. I mean, we, we've, we've, we've almost emulsified out of the ethereal wonderment of life everything down to a Gothic figure, American Gothic, a farmer looking sterile in state and expression, and the wife beside him looking completely empty. Well, who says you can't have passion? Who says you can't be creative? Who says you have to measure or limit or edit or circumscribe whatever your idea is? Everyone who would feel threatened by it, which is everyone who is not in the same step that you are, but is back to a collective whole, and therefore the collective whole establishes limits of tolerance. We will tolerate you and your ideas until they start to go to the third realm of our of our being, and then we warn you, all right, we've considered you a little esoteric, but don't go too far with your ideas. This is in corporate America, you can't go too far. You have to pay attention. What brings in the profit to the bottom line? Everything we do, we're suddenly boxed in, but it's not real. You know, we, we push and we feel resistance. I can't, I can't grow, I can't, I, I've, I'm limited, I'm limited. So then we pretend to want to be out of this highly structured, codified existence. We want to open those doors and see that sunshine of every possible potential thing. But then we resist. One hand pushes the door, the other hand holds the handle. Duality. What I want, I'm not allowing myself to experience. I want the courage, but I'm living by fear. Hence, our limitations restrict, constrict all of our desires. And therefore, we change our desires from wonderful things down to what is everyone else's simple desire. Have a house, children, a job, clothing, food on the table, and that's it. Once a year to Disneyland or out to the Grand Canyon, or if you have more wealth and you're a little more educated, then maybe a trip to a, an exotic country. But that's living everyone else's life through you, which means that inside of us, we have two very different selves. We have our authentic self, which has no fear. There's no fear in the authentic self. There's awareness of what may pose a potential danger to us, but then there's also the guidance to work around that. And then there is that which is highly conditioned and constrained, commodified, corporatized, that you can't do anything unless you know your limited value. That is what almost always dominates. So as one energy of obedience 
to our conditioning and our training and our propagandized self, it collapses everything else. It collapses it but doesn't completely smother it. Hence, people will great, go to great effort by watching motivational speakers or television shows that shows people coming back and, uh, and getting up and fighting. And that moves people. They feel, if they can do it, I can do it. But then they never do it. It's a passive acceptance that there is more, but I'm, that's okay. I've seen a thousand of those people come back. I've seen the, I don't know if you saw it, the, the guy in the military got his legs blown off and he, he came back and he began to do yoga and then he began to train himself and next thing you know this guy's trimmed down he's got a positive attitude and he's out there doing some wonderful things that a, a regular person a regular person couldn't do I mean very athletic he didn't let society's expectations of him which are well you don't have any legs you got some prosthesis but you know we're not going to expect a lot and he suddenly said, no, I expect a lot from myself. So he then, through his expectation of himself, which was different societies, he began to use all of the strength of his character and spiritual values, and he rose above his limitation. And now that dominant energy was one of, I can do anything I want, and he did. All of us are, are affected by that reveal, the great reveal that, wow, it's doable, but you have to keep reinforcing it every day. There is no such thing as happiness. There's no such thing as love. There's no such thing as health. There isn't. Because what you're doing, you're making those permanent. That if you achieve that, then you've got it. And being someone in the health field, in the motivational field, my whole life, I've never seen that. What you have is you have, you are you're creating health every day with every choice you make. You're creating, you're creating love by acknowledging your love so anyone who chooses to come in your life that day will feel the love that you are creating and sharing. You just feel warmth. You feel joy. You feel trust because love doesn't hurt people. Love doesn't abuse people. Love doesn't use people. But in our society, we never start with love as being from the person and unconditional. Everything, especially country western music, God, I lost my car, I lost my, my, my truck doesn't work, my wife has left me, woe is me, and suddenly it's the best big seller, because everybody identifies with that. Right? Could you imagine country western song? I'm in love with myself. I'm having a good time. You know, everyone in my life, we're, we're filled with joy. Well, I can't identify with that. They're identifying with the pig squealer in the deliverance. <laughs> So, what's well, true? But remember, you can't share two things simultaneously. You can't be happy and sad, good and bad, kind and, and, and negative. You're one or the other. That's the idea of understanding which energy is dominant today. So the day that you put the positive energy in your mind and then you actualize it, not just proselytize it, but you actualize it, in that moment you are love, you are health, you are creative because you're creating something. So, we're not a society that helps people alter their story by starting over. We have a hard time starting over. And yet, every journey 
should start not in the middle of where you have left off or where you stopped or where you have a disease, a divorce, you know, a crisis. Starting over there is the wrong way to start a journey because you're assuming that the road you're on is the road you should have been on to begin with. And it's not. It never is. If you want to start over, then start over. And then look ahead and say, what now is going to be the meaning of my life so I'm not starved for meaning on a road I shouldn't have taken, but was obedient to everyone else's needs for me to be the good son, the good father, the good mother, the good sister, the good brother. Stop trying to please other people by the choices you're making that somehow will allow them to feel better about you than you even feel about yourself. And that brings me to this. We don't know how to express ourselves about our frustrations except almost always inappropriately. You've all heard of ego, right? Freud wasn't the first to talk about the power of ego. He was the first one to sexualize it. And a lot of other things I think are are completely missing the boat, but that's, that's me. We see ego, and ego manifests in many different ways. And, and sometimes it's subtle, but sometimes it's very overt. You know, with the bragging, the person who feels that they can go in and use a comedy routine for pure vulgarity. You never heard the Marx Brothers being vulgar. They were clever. Far, far more challenging and difficult to be clever and sardonic and to undermine someone else's self-righteousness in a way that mocks them and we laugh about it. And that's why the Marx Brothers films were so funny. You know, there they had duck soup. If you ever watch the film Duck Soup and they're marching, you know, to war, to war, to war, and it shows the absurdity, they're mocking war. That would be very appropriate today. It'd be timely today because these are timeless issues. W.C. Fields, ultimately self-effacing and everything. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. I know. And so, so people laughed at it because they identified with it. But what happens when someone gets up and then has nothing but vulgarity and suddenly we're shocked by it? Our shock at this vulgarity uh, means that suddenly people laugh, not because it's funny, but because it unnerves us. And then you have people today who are not funny at all. Do you know anyone who's funny on television? Tell me. Do you think any of these late night comedians are funny? None of them. None of them. Put, a, put the funniest statement supposedly by any of these late night comedians or the comedians appearing on their show and go back and put the funniest by Don Wrinkles. All right? Uh, or uh, Jonathan Winters. Show me someone today who could do Jonathan Winters, extemporaneous, on, riff on anything, and it, you just laugh in your, your, yourself because they were creative and had no fear. They had no barrier. They were not politically correct. In fact, they chose to be politically incorrect. And we like people who mock authority, mock, mock stupid traditions. But now all of those people, from Richard Pryor to Lenny Bruce to Mort Saul, to the people who came through different generations would no longer be able to be able to perform because they would be considered too insensitive. You're saying something that I feel threatened by. My very life feels threatened by your comedy routine. Hence, colleges, they won't go on college campuses. And if you do go on, you first have to go into surgery, I heard it, and be castrated. 
and then you're allowed to go in and try to be funny. So ego, when it is exhibited in a way that defends its own limitation and insecurity, and that's what ego is, it is threatened by anything that would ask it to reveal its authentic self. So people posture like with the big arms, the big tattoos, and the bling, and, and the vulgarity, and the dominance of everyone in any environment, Wall Street, those are ego, egotists. You know, they know they have the power to greenlight a project. Hollywood producers, Hollywood directors, Hollywood stars, ego. You know, why else would you not want to live in a neighborhood you grew up in with your friends and family? What's so threatening about that? What's so demeaning about that? What is so limiting about that? So you want to go to a place that you know no one, that everybody's pathologically uh, narcissistic, to be around people that you're not going to hang with because nobody wants to be seen when they don't have their makeup, stylus, clothes, publicists walking on a red carpet. I think they should just, everybody in Hollywood, everybody in Hollywood should have uh, some attendees that when they walk into a supermarket, first they lay down the red carpet. Secondly, they have people who have no brains, artificially constructed. I, I, they're not transhuman, but they look at, don't they, all those people, and talking really hard questions. Hi. <laughs> How do you feel about this movie? Jesus. Never an interesting question, and always the same stupid answers, and yet people regale over being able to participate for, uh, as voyeurs to this whole treatment of unique and special people. There's nothing unique or special about anybody in Hollywood or Wall Street or big industries, yet be in that environment and suddenly the egotists are always the ones who demand attention. And then you have your extremists and exhibitionists within the ego movement. The Lady Gaga, very insecure. Uh, Madonna, not only insecure, but watch her. <clears throat> I don't see her connecting with her audience. She's not sharing that vulnerability that Elvis did or the Beatles did or others. She's merely sharing pure excitement, pure excitement. That's what she's about, all right? The excitement of her music uh, or her dance, but all that is staged. It's all choreographed. Well, how in the world then does, do you connect with people? You don't, but you don't care. When people are successful, they lose the interest in the people who made them famous and wealthy. The last person on earth that a successful person cares about is the people who made them successful. That's unfortunate. That's ego. But there's another ego that you've never heard about. It's the silent ego. And it's even more destructive. See, the narcissist, the sociopath, they're easy to identify. You don't have to ask them. They stand out. From the President of the United States and all the other people in the media, these people can't hide their ego and their narcissism and their arrogance because with ego comes arrogance because you never think that you're wrong. You have to be right about everything and everyone in your world has to agree with you or you get rid of them. <clears throat> but this silent egotist that's a different matter. It manifests by feeling an inner, an inner rage by what's not working, what they can't control in their life, by a word that is said. Let's say the word is, you're acting childish, and suddenly that silent ego starts to 
become highly reactionary. Everything, the pulse goes up, the muscles tense, the mind is flooded with, with why? I'm not this. And that's as if some, you're, somehow you personally are being accused. But what if your behavior is childish? Right? And you're the last person who's going to acknowledge because your ego protects you. Unless you're able to surrender that ego, what are you going to do with that energy? First, you're going to have no positive energy to share in any, with any person or group. Because the, the silent ego, again, defends itself because it is so hypersensitive to not controlling things and being judged. So people don't want to be judged. And the only way you can be around these people by complimenting them. And so we are living in a society of false compliments all the time. People are not being honest. Now, there's a way of telling the truth without being insensitive, by being kind. And wouldn't it be better to be around people who are at least honest? Your family members are the only ones that's going to be honest about it, or your kids. You want kids to tell you the truth? They're, you don't have to ask them. They're going to tell you the truth. You know, if you, the mother gets dressed up and is going out, you know, the, the child, the daughter will tell you if that's okay or not, right? <clears throat> that's the danger of the silent ego. The silent ego turns on itself. The external ego, the dominant ego, turns on everyone else. So one projects anger, rage, out. And the other turns it in. And what happens is when you're constantly coming from low self-esteem, what you do to, to protect yourself from low self-esteem and low self-image is you build some artificial defense mechanisms that has an answer for everything. So no matter what happens, no matter what you've done, said, or someone else has done and said, you've got a reaction for it. But if the reaction goes too far, you could lose something. So in the outer world, people are focused upon power, and a celebrity becomes a power. A rich person becomes a power. Uh, a politician has power. Anyone who can control anything in anyone else's life has power. And therefore, we, we absolve them of responsibility for what they've done wrong. Weapons of mass destruction, nobody was held accountable. Libya, destroying, nobody was held accountable. You know, sponsoring the coup in Honduras or the Ukraine, nobody's held accountable. You know, the Vietnam War, nobody's held accountable. Afghanistan, even when we're told we're lied to, nobody's held accountable. You know, Wall Street crashing the economy with all of the so-called experts on economics, and an average person living within their means, using their social security or pension and savings, buying only what they need, knowing is this something that I can repurpose if it gets broken, and they are not in debt, that person is given no credit at all. No credit. But you take, you take the Bimbernacki and you, and you take uh, all the other uh, heads of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, who got us into this myth, and all the economists they had access to, about 12,000 economists and PhDs, all of them were wrong. All of them wrong. They should have been fired, and they should never be hired again based upon the harm they caused. Yet they are the very ones that we bail out and don't allow to fail. So the people who create failure on a massive scale, create massive pain, they're such egotists, but they have, the, they have ego power, meaning they can project their power out and with that projection of power, they connect with other egotists like Barack Obama or George Bush or others. 
who have, care not about the consequences of what they do with their power. Because people who use power as a tool do not care about the consequence because they'll never be held accountable for it. So now, people who are massive egotists, who succeed and exceed normal boundaries, then start to be around other people and they have these enclaves, the World um, Economic Forum, or Davos, or the Business Roundtable, or the worst group in the world, in my opinion, the most destructive group in the world, the Council on Foreign Relations. It's never criticized because so many members of the media and politicians are members of it. So the very people who are causing virtually all of our problems in the world, all of them, all the destruction, all the killing uh, and of other countries, all of the destruction of our environment, all the destruction of our air and soil pollution, never one of them is ever held accountable. So, what if we said that those externalized egos, which are not going to change, and they're not going to share power or change power, or their methods or their protocols, your doctor, if every single patient, if the oncologist dies, they will not relent their egos, their massive, massive, destructive, pathological egos. And yet, they didn't start that way. They started probably with noble ideas about humanity and how to save lives. But somewhere in the world of theirs, they began to change. So remember I said, there's no such thing as love and happiness and trust. You have to, you have to actualize it every day or it doesn't exist. Because how many times have you seen people lost weight and then gradually gained it back and lost all their motivation? And now they're down here again and they're away, overweight again. Or how many people bought stuff they shouldn't have had and they, someone bails them out and then they go right back in there because their ego makes them think because they've got a degree in economics that somehow they're smart and they're not going to... That's ego talking. A stupid ego. A childish ego. And then instead of having money because they didn't try to make more money, they try to protect what they have and live within it, it's gone. So now the smart guy in the room is borrowing money from other people. Well, if you're that smart, you shouldn't be borrowing money. You should be saving your money and not indebting yourself through an ego of trying to show that you are a good person by what you sacrifice for other people when one gains and one loses. That's not a good exchange. That's not a meaningful life. You gain when everybody benefits, but if you mean you have to be smarter than what you otherwise would be by your reaction, then stop reacting to a situation and use reason. Pull back, take your ego out of the equation and say, what is the best way of approaching this problem? Where everyone benefits, nobody loses. Because if someone gains and someone loses, that's stupidity and that's ego. Now the silent ego <clears throat> ties in I came up with the idea of the silent ego when I was thinking about a, a really brilliant and original thinkers, and I was fortunate enough to have some of these in my life, and I felt blessed because these people had these thoughts. Carmi Harari, the great psych psychoanalyst, and Martin Shepard, and Donald Mullen, the Albert Ellis Center. But one person was very unique. His, he was uh, Lawrence Lachan. And he was at the Institute of Applied Biology when I was there. And he was the first person, all after Hans Selye, the father of stress therapy, who said, the more stressed you are by, for being unappreciated, the more likely you are, if you're a woman, to have breast cancer. The more likely you are to have breast cancer. But 
to make his point, he took hundreds of women who had no history of cancer in their family and had nothing in their lifestyle that could cause cancer. And after doing in-depth discussions with him, he made notes on which women felt underappreciated or not appreciated at all, taken for granted. And he followed them for years. And sure enough, the women who felt stressed, that's the internal stress, the quiet stress that people don't share because their own ego doesn't allow them to share. They feel threatened. Mind you, the external egotists that we're all aware of, they're right up in your face. They're obnoxious, they're crude, they're vulgar, they're rude, uh, they're, they're demeaning, they're demanding. They're everything that we've all seen in people. But they can also be shrewd and charming. Bill Clinton, Barack Obama are two examples. Extreme egotists, but people still like them. So you have a spectrum on the external egotist, you know, from really smooth and charming, but watch their motives and look at the results to those that don't care what you think about them and don't pretend to have any charm because they don't. But also the other, the quiet ego says, I don't like how I feel. I don't like the circumstances I'm in. I don't like, I'm not fulfilled in this relationship. I don't know what the meaning of my life is. The meaning seems to be I'm a cook, I'm a chauffeur, I'm a free banker, I'm a house cleaner, you know, I'm a dog walker, uh, was a, you know, was a, a sexual pleasure performer, and now I'm just burned out. And long ago, I should have been able to pull back from these responsibilities and drop some of these balls, but I can't because everyone has an expectation that I'm going to make their bed or I'm going to go shopping and I'm going to clean up after they eat the food, they'll walk away from the table and instead of saying, hold on, hold on, my work counts too. You go shopping, you cook, you clean, you put the wash in at night, you walk the dog, you clean the house, throw the wash into the dryer, fall into bed exhausted with no passion, no pleasure, and no future except this continuing day-to-day -day routine. It's a ritual that gives me no true meaning of life. And see how you like it. Oh, no. You know, then what's wrong with you? What's wrong with me is you. All right? You're my problem. But they'll never say that until they get to a boiling point. By the time you get to a point where you express yourself, you're almost always going to express yourself in an excessive manner. You don't, there, there's no soft approach. There's a hard approach because you keep turning it inside, inside, inside. Those are the people most likely to get cancers, high blood pressure, diabetes. Eat as not, not a way of just dealing with stress. Eating as a reason for not having a meaningful life. So a sensitive person becomes aware that, gee whiz, are you happy with the circumstances in your life? or not, what, what, what can we do to change these circumstances or how we look at them? How can we work together? Tell me how I can help you get through this. How can we together share responsibility instead of you doing all the heavy lifting? How can we do th something where we start a journey over? And the only way you can start a journey over is stop this nonsense that all these pseudo flakes out there have about, uh, oh, okay, yeah, um, well, let's just pick it up and throw out good energy and it'll come back to us. That's nonsense. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And it's shameful that 
other people, famous celebrities, would promote that nonsense on their television shows to an audience that is deeply in distress. The people watching these successful shows are almost always people who are crying out for help because they don't know how to do it themselves. More often than not, all they are is a commodity. There are ratings. With ratings comes higher revenue. Higher revenue becomes making me richer, famous, a billionaire. But look at the person. Look at these people. They're not healthy. They're not happy. They're just famous. And you only see them at their best when they can control and edit the interviews. You don't see them in real life. You don't see what they're like in a normal situation, how they deal with crisis in their own life. So everything is disguised and hidden. We live in a very opaque world. Rarely is there transparency. So this message is simple. You can either continue telling your story ad nauseum a thousand times to whoever's in your life, same phone calls, same complaints, feel that you're a victim of circumstances you cannot change, or you can stop and close the book on that completely. You can write yourself a long letter, the story as it was up to this day. Write it, write it out. If it's five pages, 20 pages, 100 pages. Read it, forgive it, and burn it. <clears throat> then start a new journal, start a new page, start a new story. But you've got to do it on a new path, your path, the path you choose, no one else, and you prepare yourself for the tools you need going forward. And guess which four tools you cannot use on this new path? Fear, guilt, shame, and insecurity. Because then you're not on a new path, you're simply maladapting to your old path. Now, we shouldn't try to rationalize bad choices, and yet we do. That's part of our defense mechanism. I believe most people have outgrown the chapter that they're in. But because we want permanency, because historically, that's what gave people meaning. Now when we go to places, we don't see permanency. Everything is in transition. Everything. Look, we're all in quarantine here. But in this quarantine, you have the freedom, because we're all doing this together, to go out and exercise and have wonderful food and juices and uh, to listen to lectures and workshops and watch funny movies like the Marx Brothers or Fred Astaire at night. And the other persons out there are locked into a little apartment and they're watching reruns or they have nothing to do with their time. So they, they are continuing that idea of becoming a passive spectator. But you don't change your story and you don't go into a new meaningful life using the old way of processing information. You have to have a whole new way of processing. Listen with a non-reactive mind. Go to neutral before you react. Think things through. Pull back and look at all of the different dynamics of what you're seeing to see, have I really gotten so close to my own problems that I'm overreacting to everything? A simple word triggers me? What's that tell me about my brain, my conditioning? That's what you expect from a six-year-old because a mature person doesn't react to a word. Since when does a word become a goddamn spear that gets thrown through your heart? Jesus. One of you. Does that embarrass you? Does that in any way bring you to a sense of reality to get the hell out of your own ego and get some real meaning into your life? Is that how little meaning there is? And don't try to compare what you do as a, let's say, as a, a signatory 
to being responsible for your children or having a job to the meaningfulness in your life. Toads can mate and have children. All right? Let us not use how we're a good mother, good father. You won't know if you're a good mother and good father until those people are out on their own and see, are they happy? Are they balanced? Are they free of your conditioning? Because if all they're doing is mimicking you, then you're, the power of your ego has become them. And that's going to be a crisis when they hit a crisis and they don't know how to deal with it as their own person because they're going to ask, what would dad do? What would mom do? What would uncle That's not how we deal with problems. We have to do, what will I do in this moment? Now, if you're free and fluid and flexible, you'll find a solution that is non-destructive but constructive. And hence, every problem you meet is going to be one that creates even more dynamic energy, even more ways of having resources that you are in control of to use. But if all you're doing is reacting based upon how you've been conditioned to react, then my God, a word sets you off? Wow! Then you've got about 3,000 miles of emotional minefields planted every six inches around you. Try to walk through that, where a lot more words are going to trigger you. But what if I had said this? You're acting like plywood. What's that mean? Doesn't mean anything, right? I'm so angry I'm going to eat a sprout salad. What's that mean? Doesn't mean anything, right? These are just words. Words are tools. Tools of enlightenment, tools of destruction. Don't weaponize a word because your subconscious had to weaponize a word before it offended you. You did that yourself. Took a normal word and you weaponized it. Don't let words trigger you because then you're reacting at a primordial, primitive level. Let's get the discourse up. Let's get the meaning of words up. Because for every word that you vulgarize and use with an inner or outer, a quiet or an obvious external ego, I'll show you words that have been used to enlighten and to inspire. Read them carefully. Listen to them wisely because these are words that were meant to allow us to live at a higher level of awareness. If you're acting immature, what is the best way of helping a person that is acting immature? To say you're mature? To say it's okay? Say it doesn't matter? Because you don't want anyone to feel offended? Or to bring it to their attention, simply as a word, and then allow them the opportunity to think, what is the meaning of that word? Can I change my perception? Can I change my, my reality? You can't change your reality until you change your perception of what is real. By changing your perception, it's just a word. It's just information. So don't personalize words and information. Stand back and process them calmly, reflectively. Inspiration comes from that. Reaction, blood pressure, rage comes from that. So what are you? Are you a, <clears throat> are you a person who can't wait to express and infuse purpose and meaning that allows you to see the world differently and experience it more enlightenedly? Or are you a rageful, highly opinionated, energy-suppressed time bomb waiting to go off and looking for someone to step on that minefield? Now you got the opportunity. Now you got the opportunity to hit back. Boom, boom, boom. How That's who you are. 
when you react. Remember, you can't be both. You can only be one. Which one are you? You can't be love and hate. You can't be prejudiced and open and accepting. So we better get it clear that the only way you're going to know who you are is to take an honest look inside and look at how you act and react, what you allow yourself to experience and what you allow yourself not to experience, what you block from coming in, what you censor, what you filter out, so it doesn't affect your core values, as if those core values would melt if they had another light shone on them. What in your life no longer works for you? What limitations have you allowed to exist because you're holding on to old values that don't matter in this moment? When you can do that, then one day you're going to wake up and say, I'm beginning my new journey in a new place with new tools. Honesty, openness, patience, and I'm not allowing fear, control, conditioning, propagandize mine to dictate any of my notions. I'm not going to react, I'm going to reason. I'm going to go to neutral and listen to something and see does it make any meaning, meaningfulness, uh, does it have a meaningfulness? And if not, let it go. If something's reasonable, take it in. If it's not, let it go. I will not be afraid of other cultures, other people, other ethnicities, other races, other genders. I will be accepting that other people have every right to their beliefs as I should have to mine. But up to this point, how many of my beliefs have not been real beliefs? They've been conditioned and propagandized structures that I'm supposed to live by even when they're wrong, even when they don't work, even when they're counterproductive, even when they cause disease. So that's how we begin our journey, to create new meaning in our life. Thank you.